Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. Welcome to Race Haven Live. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I appreciate you being here. This is Race Haven Live, and it is a show designed to be a dialogue where Race Haven listeners and I can learn and communicate our way towards collective solutions to the social challenges facing America. The agenda, because as you know, everyone has an agenda, right? Well, my agenda is simple. I simply want to work towards the ideal of being one nation indivisible. That is the foundation for everything that I attempt to do here. So if you agree with this ideal, then we have common ground and I wanna hear from you. To join a dialogue, simply dial 929-477-4107 and press one if you'd like to speak and share your perspective. This is an opportunity for you to call in. So I hope that our Race Haven, Race Haven listeners our dedicated race haven listeners who've been with us for over a year now uh, will take advantage of these live opportunities to call in and share some of their perspectives because um, you guys are awesome in listening to me ramble on and uh, and some of my guests and, and John and I uh, over these over the last year. So I want to do these live shows to give you an, an opportunity to get in uh, on the dialogue. So the lineup for today's show, it's going to be three segments. Segment one, we're going to discuss the Shea Moisture Controversy. Segment two, we're going to discuss ESPN's First Takes. ESPN uh, has a show called First Take, and they did a segment titled Young Black Players Getting Into Trouble. So I have some thoughts on that. Uh, I posted something on Facebook about that, and I have some thoughts about that that I want to uh, just share and, and, and hopefully get some of your perspectives on that as well. And then segment three, I'm going to unpack my thoughts on what I perceive to be the unnecessary chastising of African-American people in the media and by other African-American people. So I have a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, that this may just be scratching the surface uh, of that topic because it's something I've wanted to discuss for a long time now. And it's actually two different shows. I could do two different shows on that segment alone, uh, one on the media and one on uh, what I hear when I'm around other African-American people uh, in terms of chastising, you know, just African-American people in general uh, that I take issue with. And I want to speak on it. I want to have that conversation out loud. So with that being said, for the first segment, uh, I want to jump into the Shea Moisture uh, discussion. And again, if you're listening online and you want to jump into the dialogue and share your perspective on either any of these segments, simply dial 929 477-4107. And once you're in, press the number one, and I'll know that you want to speak. And if you're listening online and you're going to go mobile, you can just dial that number just to listen. If you got to, you know, leave and hop in the car or something, you can dial that number and listen to the show while you're on the move. So with that being said, the first segment and what I want to discuss is the Shea Moisture controversy. And it was brought to my attention, as most things are these days, uh, for me, at least, is through Facebook. And 
you know, someone posted in the uh, Facebook, uh, the, the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group, uh, posted an article uh, about this topic. And the, the gentleman, uh, it was an African-American gentleman by the name of, uh, well, I won't, I won't share his name. He didn't give me permission, so I won't do that. But uh, he stated this. He said, I find this to be disturbing and detrimental to other causes. I don't understand the need to try to limit a company to a specific customer base. So basically, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know about this issue, is that uh, Shea Moisture is a, uh, a beauty product, a hair and body uh, product company that is uh, owned and operated by African uh, people. Um, and their mother started the business uh, way back in Sierra Leone uh, in Africa, way back into the early 1900s. I believe maybe their grandmother at this point, uh, early 1900s. And it's still a family run and family owned business. And it's a very, very popular product called Shea Moisture. They have a wonderful products. My wife uh, has, a several, has several of them uh, in our household. And uh, through this controversy, I've learned that many uh, people, uh, African-American people especially, have their products. And when I initially saw it come across my timeline uh, through this gentleman who posted it in the Facebook group, as well as other people in my regular timeline, my initial thought, honestly speaking, my initial thought was, you know, some people just, you know, need something to be upset about or something to complain about. Uh, because initially, my initial thoughts were, well, I don't see an issue with a company expanding to market to uh, Americans of European descent. And the controversy was because of uh, a commercial that Shea Moisture put out. And the commercial uh, pretty much centered around um, it, what they called um, hair hate. And it had several uh, uh, European-American women uh, discussing their hair hate and, you know, with Shea Moisture being the product, uh, you know, promoting this. And it was the first time that I believe that Shea Moisture has ever marketed uh, to European-American, you know, women. And a lot of African-American women took, in, uh, um, you know, took issue with that. And one specifically who was a member of the Race Haven Community Dialogue Group, uh, she shared some of her thoughts. And uh, in the Race Haven group, and a lot of uh, dialogue uh, came after that through, that through that thread. And through listening and, or reading her and listening to her and empathizing with her, you know, her position, um, you know, it broadened my perspective. It opened my mind to, you know, why, you know, she and maybe, you know, some of the other African-American women who may share the reason. I'm sure everyone has different reasons, um, and I'm sure everyone doesn't, you know, think the way she does, but it at least allowed us a window into why one African-American woman took offense to it. So I'm going to read what she had to say here as well and um, in a second, but I also want to state that just, again, just through reading through Facebook, there were several, you know, African-American women uh, who used their products that, that took issue with it and, and really felt betrayed, you know, that this company that was, you know, built, um, with African-American people and African people, I'm sure, I'm sure in other places as well, not just America, uh, but African people in general, um, people of African descent, using their products and help build this company to a very successful company, um, you know, multi, multi-million dollar company. And now all of a sudden, the way that some of the women felt was, now you're going to turn your backs on us. And I personally didn't understand that because in my mind, I said, you know, that's just good business. You know, just branching out, you've, you've um, you know, you've marketed, you found your niche and you have a product and a core and a base. And now you're in a position where you're ready to branch out. And for what I understand, uh, an investor invested in the company, 
And I'm sure that meant, you know, they had to make more money because now these investors are going to want their, you know, their, their return on their investment. And so now they have to expand their market. So for me, thinking about it from an economic standpoint, I said, okay, that's just sound business. And what's wrong with marketing your products to different groups if it, you know, solves their issues as well. So that was kind of the way I thought about it. And I didn't put too much thought into it outside of that until I read what this young lady said, um, you know, in the face, in the, the race Haven Facebook group. And I'm going to read her comment now. So she stated this, this company would not exist if it weren't for black women. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. America has a despicable history of erasing black women in this country. This is more of that ex- exact same thing. Black women find something, love it, promote it, support it with our, support it with our dollars. Company or person gets rich because of us then we get erased from the equation altogether. It isn't about reaching out to white women. It's about erasing black women. We are your customer base. Do not take us for granted. Understand and remember that we have been villainized, slandered, abused, and basically persecuted for not conforming to white hair, quote, uh, straight standards. It is an extremely sensitive subject for us because there has been so much pain involved in trying to conform and assimilate or in trying to reject these oppressive standards that are tied into our ability to keep a job and provide for our families. So to have this company that we have literally nursed from infancy turn around and drop us for a white woman, LOL, laugh out loud. It is a huge slap in the face. The company, the company issued an apology, but the sisters don't want to hear it. They should have known better. This pattern of behavior is too, is too consistent. The ongoing erasure is too painful. The history is too deep and long. So that was this young lady's uh, perspective. And like most things, and what we attempt to do on this, you know, on this platform through Race Haven is unpack things and unpack the complexity. And because of my, my work in this space and because of me becoming more open-minded and being conscious and aware of listening and empathizing and respecting everyone's perspectives, I never hold on too tightly to my own. I'm always willing to adjust my perspective as I gain greater understanding on a particular topic. So again, I shared my initial thoughts, but after reading these comments, it made sense to me as to why, you know, someone like the young lady who shared this would, would take issue. And even with reading this, I'll be honest. So the first time I read this, um, I, I still wasn't completely, um, I, I still didn't completely understand some of the wording. Now I empathize with some of the things that she said around the, um, the straight hair standards and the white straight hair standards and how that impacts African-American women. I know that issue well, uh, based on, you know, just being around African-American women my entire life. Um, so I understand some of those pressures, but what I didn't understand is, you know, why when she said, you know, that they were dropped for a white woman. And what I didn't understand was, in my mind, I said, you know, well, well how, how are you dropped? And I actually asked her for, to gain more clarity. I, I, I said to her, I said, you know what, you know, it sounds like there's something deeper here. It sounds like, you know, do you have any precedence for feeling dropped? Because as the conversation evolved, it was like they're eventually, you know, her statements were um, they're going to eventually reformulate their product. And they're going to forget about their base and the people who help build them up 
from the beginning. And now their products will be marketed ex- exclusively and created exclusively and, um, you know, formulated exclusively for European American women, or let's just say European women of European descent in general. And so what I asked her after that, after she made that statement um, in the thread, I said, you know, why? Instead of me jumping you know, to conclusions and saying, you know, well, you're making an assumption, which again, my knee-jerk reaction and my instinct uh, would want to do that. But again, just being more aware and wanting to ask questions to learn to get to the deeper underlying reason and root causes why people feel the way they do. I just asked questions. And the question I asked was, you know, well, why would you say that? Why did you jump to that? Do you have precedent? Is there something that's missing? And then she went on to explain another product that was created by African Amer- an African-American company. And that's what they did. Over time, they eventually reformulated their product to only cater towards women of European descent. And that's where that was at the root of some of the things she said. Had I not asked, had I not dug a little bit deeper, I would have just been making assumptions based on some of the things that she was you know, writing. And as we know, you know, Comple- conveying complexity is difficult in general, uh, but also complaint, con- excuse me, conveying complexity through text on Facebook is even more difficult. And that's where it really takes the patience to want to ask questions before, you know, jumping in or trying to add your perspective. So I see that we have a caller on the line that wants to jump in. I'm going to let this caller jump in and then I'm going to actually share with you uh, what I received from another member of the Race Haven group, um, uh, a woman of European descent who was really confused and she didn't understand the backlash from, from uh, women of African descent. So I'm going to share her comments with you next. So, but before I do that, we have a caller on the line calling in with the last four digits of your phone number being 8873. Caller, if you could please state your name, where you're calling in from and ask your question or share your perspective. Hi, hi, this is um, Gypsy J. I'm the one who made the comment on Facebook. <laughs> Hey, Jay, how you doing? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy that you were able to carve out some time to call in. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So so please, um, if you can just provide some context, you heard how I laid everything out. Uh, please, you know, just, just provide some context uh, initially, and then I'm actually going to read you something uh, that uh, a woman of European descent inboxed me. She inboxed it to me, okay. and I want to share that with you and get your response from that as well. But do you, do you have any initial thoughts outside of what you already wrote? Well, I just want to make one correction. Um, the company that um, that I felt um, dropped us was – it's not that they – they don't exclusively make their products for um, women of European descent. It's just okay. that, um, I mean, okay, so this is a really nuanced kind of topic because there are several, like, stairs, I guess you may, I mean, maybe even levels or stairs um, involved because um, it's not just about it being about European, of European descent. There's also, you know, the the discussion of the colorism and then the texturism that goes along with that, um, with the ideology being um, being as, as close to white, you know, is like the safest way for black folks to exist in this country, right? 
So okay. in doing that, what 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 happened is that um, the the more mulatto, if you will, um, looking African Americans um, is what you see more. That's what you see more, and this company that I'm talking about, like at first they were with the natural sisters who started the natural movement or, or got it restarted because, you know, our, you remember our parents and the Afros and whatnot, they started right. it, I guess, they, they revived it. But the women who did that were dark-skinned, very coarse-haired, you know, women who were just tired because it take, it would take them the most effort to um, – Change their hair into this, uh, and to conform with um, what I so You're breaking up a little bit. You're breaking up a little bit. And they, this company that oh. that I felt that Jesse, can you hear me? Jesse, yeah, hold I can on, Jesse. Okay. Okay, you were breaking up a little bit. Um, I was. Okay. okay, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I hear you nice and clear now. Could you just repeat the last okay, two sentences? Great. I said that um I said that the uh the the women who revived the natural hair movement were dark skinned women with or not even necessarily just dark skin, but just um skin or lighter skin. It didn't matter really that particular thing, but it's the texture, like, you know, the coarsest hair, the uh the one that has the most sponge back to it that would have the most shrinkage, but, you know, most of the ones who really reach that movement, and then you see them consistently fade out so that the natural hair movement becomes about this, um, you know, acceptable pattern, like the, uh, like the, that was out of the Shea Moisture um, commercial with the other white women. Um like that is the majority of black women don't look like that, you know. The majority of black women in America have coarser hair. I mean, I'm and I'm like, and I'm kind of going out on a limb when I say that, but I, but I'm pretty sure if you, if there's any statistical evidence, anybody can look that up. I'm pretty sure that would be the case because relaxers are still being sold, you know, by the gazillions. Because women have coarse hair and need to, you know, women have coarse hair and they're trying to, you know, conform to the standard, to the straight hair standard. And that company that I said sold out, they still market to um, to African American women. What you'll see in all of their ads and all of their commercials is um, lighter skin. Looser, much looser curl pattern women. Do you understand what I mean? I do. So, okay, go ahead. I do. Something that maybe like doesn't understand, but because of the oppression, the internalized oppression, we um, we live in that we experience because of that an issue with tourism and then texturism on top of that. You know, next so, so I'm, I'm let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. So you said because of that, because of that struggle, you said you internalize, um, 
you internalize a, a level of oppression because of having to conform, um, you know, to those standards. I think that that would be something I, I can imagine that for someone who's uh, not of African descent, they may struggle trying to understand that. Um, what type of, like, how does that, well, is it, is it stress? What is it? Could you just, um, you know, unpack that a little bit more, maybe to help some of our listeners understand, you know, who may say, well, how can you be oppressed by something like that? Understand how that, you think that people want to understand how the oppression, what it looks like, or like, what do you mean when you, do you want me to unpack? Well, just how, I guess, how does it make you feel? Just unpacking just how it makes you feel, you know, as as someone. Okay. So I, I mean, I, I mean, in a word, it makes me feel really bad. <laughs> it's upsetting. It's angering. It's frustrating. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just frustrating because to see my, and, and you know what, I don't think that it's only black women really suffer from this, but I think that black men suffer from it a little less because they just cut their hair off. You know what I right. mean? who have the the more and, and I'm sorry just you're still going in a little bit so I'm not sure if you have like a sweet spot you can get to uh, I'm trying maybe to maybe um, I do maybe this is it right here is this it right I here I can hear you clear hopefully this will be it because I'm, I'm letting it go on I, I apologize to the listeners I know it's not a smooth listen but I really want to get um, you know Gypsy's perspective on this and uh, this context uh, so thank you for bearing with us uh, you know as we work through these you know, the, the, the choppiness of the call. So, but please continue. Are you there, Gypsy? Okay. So Gypsy's dropped completely. Maybe she'll call us right back in when she gets a, uh, a better signal. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that she just said was, you know, um, maybe even men, African-American men, um, you know, experience this this sense of um, having to conform as well, and I can in terms of our hair, and I can um, I can also speak to it a little bit as a young man. Okay, Gypsy again. Let me let me see if we have a better connection. Hello, yes, Gypsy. Can you hear me? Can you hear me well at all now? Yes, you sound still... you sound a lot clearer now. So hopefully it'll stay that okay, way. Okay, great. Yeah, hopefully it so, will. The last thing you were saying, and I was about to comment on really quickly, you said some, you know, as men, you know, uh, African-American men, you know, experience it as well. Um, and, and it's easier for them because they can just cut their hair. And, and I just wanted to, to share that I remember when I first graduated from undergrad, uh, when I was in undergrad, mm-hmm. I had cornrows. I had cornrows when I was when I was in undergrad. And that mm-hmm. was like one of the as a young man, uh, one of the things that I kind of thought to myself is, is that I was never going to conform with my hair. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be successful in business and in life, and I'm still going to have these cornrows. Now, that didn't last mm-hmm. very long just, just because not necessarily to conform, but because I just got tired of uh, having to have my hair done, uh, you know, and, and maintained and upkeep. It just was easier to cut it. But um, I remember at, at one point, you know, questioning why, you know, I couldn't just, you know, express myself with my hair the way I wanted to. And then I'm going to leave you with this, too. And then some people... Uh, of European descent, when I had this conversation with them, you know, some of them said, well, it's not just an African-American thing because, you know, I want to wear my hair long, but if I'm going to be in a corporate world or business world, I got to get cleaned up too. I can't have a long, you know, you know, uh, hair, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to hear, get your perspective on that. 
Okay. My perspective is it's not the same at all. It'd be one thing. The reason why it's not the same is because what's happening is that in order for us to look in quotes professional, we can't let our hair exist as it grows out of our head. It is deemed unprofessional. I would never go on a job interview with my hair the way that it is right now. If I really wanted to get that job, I would not go on an interview with my hair like it is right now. And the way it is right now is exactly the way that it was after I got out of the shower this morning, after I just washed my hair. So it is just in its natural state, the way that it grows out of my head. But I would not go on a job interview with my hair like that because the because I know that it is looked at as unprofessional for me to have, you know, big, fluffy hair, um, and that's the problem. And I and my, the, my hair, and it's easier for me to conform to that standard because my hair is actually like, you know, I, I do have the bigger curl wave pattern or whatever. But so it's easier for me to conform to that standard. But for a lot of my sisters out there, it's not. It's not as easy. It's not as easy to conform to that standard. It means that in order for them to do it, they have to put chemicals in their hair. And you know that there was like some, some, someone has found um, the link between um, the high incidence of, uh, is it, um, I want to say, um, it's when you have, I guess, like there's several cysts on the on the uterus, polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's, there's like okay. a, a huge occurrence of that, and they're finding that it's in that that it has some relationship to um, relaxers. I mean, it's just things like that. Like you're like, and and children are being subjected to these chemicals because the parents want their child to be accepted socially. You know. And that's why it's different. It's different because girls at school are being kicked out of school or being told to go back home because their hair is in cornrows, because that is a protective style. It is also an easy way to maintain your hair when you are when you are African American and your hair is coarser and you can't just wet your hair every day and, and you know and leave out the house. If you can't do that then you need to do something so that you can get to school on time, you can get to work on time. And those styles provide us with that, um, uh, with that convenience as well as it being healthy and, you know, protective for our hair because we're not really supposed to be combing through all those um, curls and whatnot every single, you know, every single day constantly, you know, applying heat to the hair and all of that stuff. Like that, that's not healthy for anyone's hair. But especially when your hair is of um, a lower porosity and it is, you know, more tightly uh, coiled. Like you shouldn't do that all the time. And, okay, so- you know, that's just, so that's why I say it's not different. It, that's why I say it's not the same. It's just, it's not the same. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And um, I think it's especially, you know, from the woman's standpoint, um, you know, guys sometimes can simplify, oversimplify things because even, you know, no matter your descent, guys may say, you know what, we, we just keep our hair cut to a certain level, keep it groomed and tight. Um, you know, so that's how guys may look at it. But would you, I think the, 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 the nuance that you express in terms of for a woman of European descent, when she lets her hair grow out naturally, you know, she just pretty much has to comb it 
comb it down or, or whatever or brush it down and she's good to go. An African-American woman who lets her hair grow out naturally, uh, it's not that simple and it doesn't look the same way. It doesn't, it may not lay down the same way, but if you just, uh, for an African-American woman. If I, can, if I can just interject really quickly, just this one okay. idea that would be that simple for us if our hair was accepted the way it grows out of our head. It would be mm-hmm. that easy. But right. the fact of the matter is, is that the, that, and that is part of the oppression that we feel. Right. Do you understand right. I get that. That, that, that even normal to us, even like, and I don't even know if everyone is even thinking of it on this level, because it is just, like my, my mother said to me today, it's in the sinew of our anatomy. It's like, it's like, it's part of us. It just even seems weird to even think that the hair growing out of your head should not, doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, altered in any kind of way. You shouldn't have to do anything other than maybe fluff it out or pick it out or whatever and then walk exactly. out the door and everyone be like, you know, oh, you look nice today. You know what I mean? Right. No, I know exactly what you mean. That's what I was trying to bring out. I was just trying to bring that out, and I'm glad you went on ahead and expressed that because I don't think, you know, I, I'm, I know for a fact that there are people in America, even – well, I won't even go there. I'll just say this. I know for a fact there's people in America that don't even realize that when they see an African-American woman with straight hair that's laying down, that that's not natural. They probably think that that's literally just, you know, what it is. Right. And they don't realize that right. African-American, you know, I'm sorry, women of African descent in general, you know, their hair is more naturally look, will look like an Afro or some type of puff right. or something. Um, right. So, right. So, yeah, so I, I appreciate that. But let me, before we close out this segment, I want to um, let you hear what uh, a woman, um, you know, who is a member of the group and a friend of mine, someone who I know, um, and she inboxed me instead of posting in the group for whatever reason. Um, you know, some people just don't want to put things in the group. I understand. I get inboxed. Right. Often. wanted to be careful. I mean, I understand she's feeling a little maybe scared or nervous. Right, right. Um, and actually, she actually said that, unfortunately, because sometimes people in a group can be can be quite mean. Um, and that's, that's actually something she pointed out. Um, but with that being said, she stated this, she said, all this time I have talked to other. Well, let me say this, I'm paraphrasing, I'm taking I took bits and pieces of some of the things she wrote, because she wrote a lot. But this is a part that mm-hmm. I wanted to bring out. She said, all this time, I have talked to others about racism and have suggested for people to be more empathetic to the feelings of African-Americans as we try to navigate forward and not forgetting or erasing what has happened, but learning from it and how it's impacted African-Americans. From that being more mm-hmm. sensitive to the struggles of systemic racism and how to combat that moving forward. My whole thought around a solution to this has been solidarity. However, when I see the uproar of certain things such as Shea, wanting to be inclusive of everyone, I get confused. How do we move forward? How do we move this country forward in solidarity if we say we want it, if we want it, but the party that needs it the most backs out when the, in, when the inclusiveness directed towards, when the inclusiveness is directed towards Caucasians? It comes across as we want solidarity, justice, and inclusiveness until you step on our turf and like parts of our culture. What do you have to say to that? I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, I mean, I so understand where she's coming from. I, I so understand. And I, and I only imagine that if I were in her shoes, I would feel the exact same way because she literally has not lived all these years 
being black and watching the patterns as they go, as they have gone. And I, first I just want to say that I, that I hope that she does still stand in solidarity and that she still, you know, continues to, you know, be an alliance. And I hope that this whole thing hasn't, like, turned her or anyone else away. It's not about – I don't think that the majority of us are – it's not that we were mad at Shay for including white folks. It's that we are upset that they didn't, in that commercial, that they didn't include um, more black women and specifically black women who have struggled the most and the black women that put that company on the map, which were the black women with the coarser hair and also black women of darker complexions, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. that was that was part of the um, that was part of the uprise as well as for me it was this comparing hair hate with a white woman. Like I just like there's just like some things that we're just not gonna do. Right. Okay. You're deciding, you know, what color you want your hair to be that day is just not anything compared to literally um, trauma passed on from generation to generation over this hair. Little black children all over the country sitting in between their mama's knees, crying their eyes out. It looks like torture and abuse because they are trying to comb that child's hair into a socially acceptable um, um, style. And that socially acceptable style, is neat. it needs to be smooth, the edges need to be laid, and it needs to be as straight as possible. And if you're not going to, and if it's not going to be as straight as possible, then the edges better be, you know, laid and everything better be smooth. You know what I mean? So. Right. That I mean, like there is just so much behind the the you know the internalized you know hatred of of so that right there was just a bad thing to have in the commercial and 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 um the CEO admitted that you know and to his credit he admitted it and he said a lot of things straight I hope that folks listen to him because I definitely don't want I don't want to put Shea Moisture out of business I want them to continue to thrive and grow but it's just being you know, sensitive and understanding of the um, to the customer base. You know what I mean? Yeah, like and, you just and, can't treat everyone the same. You know what I mean? Like right. if you, you know, as a you're a doctor of, of psychology, true or false? Am I making that a- up? Education, education, doctor of education. A- of education. Well, but still, mm-hmm. even in education, you would know that you could not teach a child that has been abused and hurt and abandoned or forlorn or whatever, you couldn't teach that child the same as you could one that, Absolutely. you know, had generations and generations of their family being, you know, right there and so forth. Like, you know, right. you just have to be, you know, careful about your, you know, about your customer base. Sure, sure. I, I get it 100%. And I think that's a great place to, um, you know, wrap that up. I think what you said, the way you just finished everything was so perfect. Um, I mean, and I, I hope that I actually didn't. And I didn't even touch what she what she asked, but I just hope that people stay stay with stay with us, stay 
keep being in alliance with us. And um, I think that um, the more that she and other people of European descent um, talk to us and understand, you know, how deep and how deep this is, and they will understand it. It's not that we were pulling away from from them. We were just needing to be included, needing to be seen, and we need for all of our people to be seen, not just our ones that are as close to European-looking as possible and still be called black. You understand? Like Absolutely. all of us, because there's more of us that are deeper complected, you know, around. There's a lot more of us than you would ever know from looking at television or print media mm-hmm. ads and so forth. We just need right. to broaden the definition of beauty for it to include African women and women of African descent. It just needs to be broader, and that's what the vitriol was was about. Awesome. I'm done. Thank thank. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you for calling in and adding that context the show would not have been as valid if you didn't call in and add that, that context. Cause I could not speak to it in a way that you just spoke to us. So thank you so much for taking the time, Gypsy. And I appreciate your contribution to the race Haven community. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great day. So I want to just, you know, she brought out, Gypsy just brought out so many things. I appreciate her articulating all the things she just articulated. Um, so before we go to the next segment, I just want to close out by saying a couple of things that, that resonated with me. Um, you know, it just kind of speaks to what this whole race haven movement is all about, which is dialogue and more importantly, listening. Um, you know, our, our, our sensibilities are always going to be shocked uh, when something like this happens. Uh, but it's also a great opportunity for us to learn an opportunity to learn from one another. You know, she stated some things that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm sure that many, not all, but many, um, you know, women of European or just people of European descent in general uh, don't understand the trauma of dealing, having to grow up like she expressed with their hair, you know, being combed out with the, you know, that comb, that fine tooth comb going through the kinks and these little girls crying. I've seen sisters, cousins, you know, aunts or whatever have to get their hair done and it looks painful when they cry. And it's, it's, it's such a, a task and it's such a chore all because if they allowed their hair just to do what it does naturally, they wouldn't be able to fit and conform into society. And it, it breathes about a level of resentment. And there's so many layers of resentment that uh, African-American people carry uh, that a lot of European, um, European Americans just wouldn't have any knowledge of because they haven't lived it. So one of the things I try to do with this race haven platform is to have these conversations out loud so that people who are truly trying to understand and who truly want to empathize across, you know, uh, b- going both ways can hear from one another, learn from one another so that we can grow in understanding so that we can, you know, the more we can empathize with one another, the better we understand one another and we can get away from, from, um, you know, sensationalism that, you know, goes on in the media and in politics and all these various uh, lanes that divide us. When the reality is, as I said from day one, when I started Race Haven in my first episode is I think we have a communication issue. I truly believe that we have a communication issue in terms of most people, in terms of the masses, not speaking about, you know, how power is wielded uh, in this society and how capitalism and uh, classism and those things are wielded to separate and divide. But when it comes to race relations uh, in general amongst the masses, I truly believe that we just have a communication divide. And I, and, I, and I hope that, you know, the context that was brought out 
from what Gypsy had to say uh, is meaningful to the listeners. And another thing that I think was important, as she said, which I love, is that the, the CEO, when he explained, and well, first of all, he apologized, and he understood where he had fallen short in conveying and being cognizant of the sensitivity and how he can't just lump the experiences of what's quote-unquote hair hate is and think that it's the same amongst people of different ethnicities because it's not. So that was a lesson from him, for him to learn. But here's the thing. One of the things that you'll hear me saying, you've heard me say in the past, is that one of the ways that we learn is we got to say stupid stuff in order to learn what the right stuff is. So, you know, and I use that analogy often because that's kind of how my, I, I communicate with my wife. I said, babe, we got to just talk. And sometimes I got to say dumb stuff so that you can correct me so I can get to the right stuff. Because the dumb stuff is in my head and I won't get to the right stuff if I'm afraid to share it, if I'm afraid to act or whatever. And if you're not, again, if you're not empathetic, if you're not nurturing, if you're not caring, you're not, you know, helping me and guiding me lovingly, then that'll breed resentment on my end because I can't say things because we don't have that level of communication. So just on a broader scale, the CEO of Shea Moisture, I hope that he gets support. I hope that the, uh, the buyers of the product will continue to buy and support the product and accept his apology and take this as an opportunity for him to learn and grow and, you know, understand that, you know, maybe he'll do some things with, with, um, you know, um, testing groups and focus groups and things like that going forward so that he doesn't make this mistake again. But thank you so much for adding that context again, Gypsy. And I'm going to go ahead and transition to the next topic, which, which is segment two. But before I do, I want to ask all of you a question. Do you get value out of listening to Race Haven? If the answer is yes, I want to ask you to consider becoming a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month. Your support will assist in the growth and maintenance of the show, and I would greatly appreciate it. If you visit racehavenpodcast.com and you click on Become a Patron, you'll learn more about the goals that we have for the show and the cool perks that you can earn for supporting us towards getting achieving those goals and making the show better for all of you, the listeners. So with that being said, I'm going to segment to, to speak briefly about uh, ESPN first take segment titled Young Black Players Getting Into Trouble. So if you want to get in on this segment and if you want to share your perspective, please call in now at 929-477-4107 and press 1 so that, so that I know that you want to speak. So earlier... Um, let's say um, today is Wednesday. I believe it was towards the end of last week, uh, right around the NFL draft. Um, ESPN's first take is a show they have and Stephen A. Smith, uh, an African-American and Max Kellerman, a European American are the host of the show along with Molly, Quir Molly Quirum. Um, and I believe she's of uh, European descent as well. I may be wrong on that, but I believe she is. And either way um, they did this segment and the segment was young black players getting into trouble. And they spoke on that, you know, and, that segment really bothered me. And for me, I took offense to doing an entire segment about quote unquote young black. And they were talking about football players who are, who are going into the NFL draft. I took issue with them doing an entire segment on young black players getting into trouble. And the reason why is because again, nothing that happens in society happens in a vacuum. Okay. There's historical precedent that always has to be considered when doing anything. And in America, the historical precedent in the media is that African-American people, generally speaking, speaking, have always been scrutinized as a whole, as a group. And 
when it comes to scrutiny of other ethnicities, especially those uh, of European descent who make up the majority of our population, is always done from an individual level. I personally have never seen a segment about, quote unquote, um, white players, uh, young white players getting into trouble. Or I've never seen anything about, you know, young white students or young white professionals, you know, or when the Wall Street Bank situation happened, you know, white executives, you know, causing mass hysteria and pain across America. It's never grouped, it's never spoken to in that way. It's never grouped that way. And I take issue with that. And one of the ways I, I explain it in the past, I've explained it in the past and how I perceive it is like, as an African-American, we're living in a fishbowl. And uh, the masses of Americans uh, are looking in on us. They're looking in on us. It's like African-American people are, are in this fishbowl and just millions and millions of people are just looking in and analyzing, poking and prodding uh, uh, our every move our every, you know, move, our every, you know, whatever. And that bothers me because African-American people are just as individual as any other people in this country, in this world. We're individuals. We are not the same. Like we have different, you know, all African-American people don't share, um, you know, similar, similar things. And in terms of several different characteristics, socially, economically, or whatever. And you know, even when I hear people talking about the African-American, com African-American community, when I hear people speaking for the African-American community, I cringe. And I'm not saying I've never said that. You may have caught me on a, a race haven episode at some point, you know, saying I don't think I have, but I'm just covering my bases here that if I did say it just out of habit because it's been ingrained. Um, but when I hear the, you know, you know, us in the African-American community, I'm like, well, what is that? Where is this quote unquote African-American community? Because when I drive around and I deal in my everyday life, I see African-American people of all different walks of life, um, you know, across the social economic board, across the educational, you know, I mean, spectrum, across the education spectrum, across the, you know, um, um, political spectrum, across the, um, you know, career spectrum. I mean, African-American people are embedded in every lane in society in general. So, you know, when we speak to the ills, and here's the other thing, I know as a country, we speak to the ills of uh, a segment, primarily low-income, impoverished African-American people. But when I hear people speak about the ills of that segment uh, of Americans, it's as, it's as if they're speaking to it as it applies to all African-Americans. And that's something I take issue with. But going back to um, you know, ESPN's first take, I feel like, again, in the media, I feel like it's, it's just it's irresponsible to do a segment titled Young Black Players Getting Into Trouble. And the reason why I feel that is because, you know, again, it just it perpetuates this idea that people of African descent, the those people who choose to commit crimes or who choose to get in trouble or just get in trouble, you know, just for all the various reasons that people get in trouble, especially young people, teenagers, right? Teenagers and young adults in their early 20s, all the various reasons that they've gotten in trouble from all ethnicities throughout the entirety of human society the, the why they would lump young black players getting getting into trouble um, as a segment, it it perpetuates the idea that when African American uh, young people get in trouble, it's some type of worse type of trouble. When African American young people smoke weed, it's like this worst kind of smoking of weed. Or when African Americans you know commit other crimes or you know steal something or I, even in domestic abuse and all these various things that were highlighted in the draft process. It's as if it's like five to ten times worse 
That's how I perceive it. And if you perceive it differently, I would love to hear it from you. And because, and, and the reason I perceive it that way, and is because again, I never see groups of, and I'm going to use just for example purposes, European Americans grouped in that sec, grouped in segments like that. If you went to um, any college, if you went to any college that is predominantly European American, like the one I, I went to undergrad, and for all the graduating classes, you know, all the graduating classes, if you did a, if you took a percentage of the European American students, like the school I went to, which was 97% European American, and if we took a poll of all the students who got in trouble for drugs, or don't, let's not say got caught, but all the students who took and used illegal drugs like cocaine or marijuana, all the students who drunk um, alcohol under the age of 21, all the students who got in trouble for sexual abuse or rape, and all the students who were um, accused of um, you know, domestic abuse, and then stealing or any other you know, indiscrepancy that you want to name. If we went around to every college, major college and university, and, and, and we gathered those numbers, the news could have a field day with that. They could easily say that so-and-so college, uh, you know, I'll take a similar thing. Young white graduates of 2017 getting into trouble. But we never see that. And let's go down to high school. Because, again, European Americans still make up the majority of the population. So go to most high schools in America, especially in those that are in predominantly European-American communities. And if we did the same thing and we looked at the graduating class only, we would find several, you know, a, a, I'm sorry, we would find a percentage of those individuals who have gotten in trouble. But we never see anything like that in the media. So some people may be listening and saying, but why are you comparing it, Scott? The reason I'm comparing it is, again, because you can't just look at this in a, in a vacuum, you have to look at it throughout the course of history. And throughout the course of history, the media has misrepresented and sensationalized the missteps of African-American people to feed into the socialized and indoctrination, uh, the, the socialized norm and indoctrination that African-American people are somehow less than European-American people are somehow more violent or more criminal than European-American people. And this started during the days of slavery. This was one of the ways to maintain the ideas of white supremacy. It was one of the ways to maintain the idea that people of African descent were less than human, were less human than people of European descent. This is one of the ways to indoctrinate the masses to continue to be apathetic towards something that's inhumane as slavery. So one of the ways that the powers and the, the, the wealthy uh, landowners and the slave owners and the politicians during that time, they continued to, uh, you know, perpetuate this system of, of slavery was by using the media to convince the masses that African people deserve the treatment they were getting. They deserve to be treated less than human. And one of the ways they did that is by highlighting the, the missteps of the, the very small percentage of African-Americans who actually misstepped. They highlighted those, and they made it seem like the norm. So when I see it today, it gets under my skin because I cannot believe that in 2017, some of those same tactics and some of those same things are being done. And here's the thing. Here's what I believe. I don't even think it's done with the same intent that it was done back then in all instances. But however, 
I know that because we've all been indoctrinated and conditioned into this, this, this society that was built on the idea of white supremacism and white normalcy and all the things that come with that, these behaviors, they simply get passed down. And it simply becomes a part of the cultural DNA. And it simply becomes a part of what the, the masses then crave. It's a story that the people crave. And again, subconsciously, it's just normal. When I say they crave it, it's like it's normal. I turn on the news and I see stories about people of African descent committing crimes and, you know, being hyper, you know, whatever, uh, sensationalized about all the missteps within the quote-unquote African-American community or these young African-American people who are these thugs and they're these animals and they're this, this, that, and the other. And it feeds into that mindset that this country was built on. And subconsciously, we've all bought into it, even African-American people themselves, some, not all, have bought into it. I hear it myself all the time. And actually, that's actually where I'm going with segment three, is even African-American people themselves buy into and accept it. I got a lot of pushback on Facebook, people saying, well, if they don't want to be in the news, then don't get in trouble. I'm like, are you serious? In my mind, I'm like, what do, what do you mean? Like, do, we have, do you have those same expectations for other people of other ethnicities? And if you don't have those same expect, and if you do have those same expectations, why aren't you holding the news media accountable to being fair and balanced? Why aren't you holding them accountable to doing segments about when quote unquote white young people get in trouble? And the reason why, again, I want to make sure I'm unpacking this very well, and I'm gonna go to this caller who's who's chiming in. But the reason why I, I wanted to give the example of the predominantly European-American college is because people have said, well, you know, the NFL is predominantly African-American. So, of course, because they're predominantly African-American, if we're going to focus in on the transgressions of that group, that segment of, of, of people, the majority of people committing the transgressions are going to be African-American because within that segment, within that sub-segment sub, um, of society, they're mostly African-American people. And my point is you can go to any sub-segment of society where there's a majority of any ethnicity and you're going to get similar statistics in terms of those who are committing the transgressions in society. It's just a, for whatever reason, people commit transgressions, okay? But all I see in the media is African-American people who commit transgressions being highlighted in the way that ESPN did by saying young black players getting into trouble and doing a whole segment on it. And I believe Stephen A. Smith thought that he was talking righteous and, and, and schooling and doing something good. I don't think that he realized that he's actually hurting African-American people. In my opinion, hurting the young African-American people that he thinks that he's helping by perpetuating the idea that, again, young African-American people are just inherently more criminal, which then turns over into some of the disproportionate uh, policing that we see in the African-American community, the disproportionate shootings of Af young African-American men in society, all these things, all these, um, you know, all the indoctrination and everything I just unpacked, it plays in to what we see uh, in the criminal justice system and how uh, the police in general engage with young African-American men. And the media plays a huge part in that. So I want to go to the caller. The last four digits of your number is... 7955. Please state your name, where you're calling in from, and, and please share your perspective or your questions. Hey, what's going on, Scott? It's uh, D'Amico's, Courage Coach. D'Amico's, how you doing, man? Thanks hey. for calling in. Calling from Atlanta. 
Hey, no problem, brother. Uh, so I haven't watched the segment um, that you're referring to regarding to the, uh, the the black athletes always getting in trouble, uh, but I do watch the sports channel every day. And uh, what you see, especially from, like, Stephen A. Smith, uh, a great problem of mine is that, you know, he comes from, like, the school of a lot of older traditional blacks, which is to uh, – they they believe in order to build the black person up or empower black people is to continue to denigrate them, break them down, tell them where they're weak at. And uh, the problem I have with that is that there's there's never a equal balance of empowerment. It's never no well you're failing here, but you're right, you're also improving in this area. So there's no like and no positive reinforcement along with the negative critique. And so that's where my huge problem comes in that when I'm even listening to people such as uh, Stephen A. Smith or when I'm going to any event, and it's, I know it's going to be uh, regarding around the issue of black empowerment, um, when it comes to these athletes, I, I often see him specifically more harder on black people, black athletes, black coaches uh, than any other racial group type of person. And so what you'll have is these athletes, these black athletes, these young black athletes, because I mentor a lot as well, they'll grow up and they'll say, you'll, you'll have them regurgitate words such as don't mess with the white women because, you know, you're, that's a guaranteed, you know, uh, that's a guaranteed uh, jail bid, going to prison. Uh, you'll hear uh, these black kids having to be extra cautious of their actions off the field because they know they're going to be ridiculed and punished more severely than their white counterparts, you know. Meanwhile, you know, their, their, their white counterparts are chewing tobacco on the field, you know, getting mm-hmm. into all kinds of trouble, driving, drinking and driving, you know, able to live a more freer lifestyle, less constrained lifestyle than their black counterparts. And so uh, the the huge issue that I have is when you watch the – that's why I, I, don't, I rarely watch sports, and I actually love watching Skip and um, Shannon because Shannon – um, he he. Even though he's kind of old school Southern, he still comes. Mm-hmm. The way his approach is more empowering to listen right. to rather than continuous negative critique. Because we know we know we're in a bad predicament. But even me, you know, me being a professional coach and how I work with clients through their trauma, I can never get a person to transform and rise from their trauma by continuously imp- impeding upon them how much they failed throughout life you know, how much wrong they've done. You know, I have to always remind them on how powerful and how strong they are so that they gather the, the strength within themselves right. to rise out of their, their negative place, um, so i.e. depression. Right. Sorry. Let me jump in really quick, um, if you don't mind, because I want to ask a question specifically. Something you said brought up something for me, and I want you to speak to it if you don't mind. Um, because everything you're saying, man, it, it resonates with me 100% in terms of, you know, this is what I hear, and this is the pushback that I've, I've hear. I hear. And as being, with you being African-American, I know you've heard this as well. Mm-hmm. Because we know that the, they scrutinize, um, you know, uh, people of European descent generally, or society generally, and the system that we live in generally, because a lot of times when we talk about systems, there's African people and Asian people and native people who work for and within those systems who perpetuate the same oppressions within that particular system. So it's not just Mm -hmm. European American people. So with that being Mm -hmm. said, you know, those people and those systems, they do overly scrutinize young African American people and African American people in general 
uh, depending on what we're talking about. So because mm-hmm. we know that, that's why we that's why I am so hard on you. That's why it's, mm-hmm. if, if, if I'm being Stephen A. Smith, I, I can hear someone like you said, that old school person who's like, that's why I am 10 times harder on you, because you know what, quote unquote, we are up mm-hmm. against. And, and again, and I just have to because I do this on this show. Most of the time when I'm talking about we, it's generally, especially um, uh, young African-American people who are in impoverished, coming up in impoverished situations where they don't have the levels of support and, and financial mm-hmm. backing to get them out of trouble if something were to go wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So it's generally the target in these situations is usually not just young African-American men, um, but poor or low income, you know, young African-American men when we're talking about the we. So with that being said, you know, that's the, that's the pushback. So what do you say to those people, um, you know, who say okay. that, you know, I'm doing it because I care. Okay. All right. Well, let me respond to that again. Uh, one, as, as being a young black male in this country, cause I'm 28 now. Um, and, uh, and also being a professional that works in the mental health, you know, capacity, both with older adults. Um, my oldest client is 53 and with, I mentor young children, uh, teenage boys specifically. Uh, when I whenever I hear that explanation, I hear that kickback. What that what that sounds like to me, that sounds like one operating out of trauma and fear, more than one operating out of care, love, compassion, understanding, and empowerment. See, right. the thing is, is that we live in there's a there's a theory called I'm sure you you've heard of this the crooked room theory. And it's you, you're you're so accustomed to living in this unhealthy, you know, crooked environment, uh, uh, mm. this crooked perspective of life, skewed way of life. You, you're so accustomed to living it in it for so long that you think stepping out of it and seeing the world for what it truly is, uh, you think something's wrong with the whole entire world. You think the whole entire world has it wrong, and you think what you've been doing for so long is the right way. This is why, um, and, and that steps in even to a larger conversation I don't want to get into right now. Um, but uh, uh, I think my whole kick feedback would be like, I, I would question the mental health of that person because there's there's a great book called The Black Male Hand, 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 uh, Handbook by Kevin Powell, the uh, author of Vibe Magazine, and in right. it he talks about his early years in high school when he went to he would he was in the lunchroom he was schooling. The black kids, just that he was saying that he was regurgitating the exact same message. This was in the 70s, the exact same message that we were talking about now of how coming down on them, telling them what they, they're failing, telling them how the white man is keeping them down, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I was, he went to his mentor and said, he said, man, I was killing them. I was hitting with those points and boom, 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 boom. And his mentor stopped him and said, he said, why are you talking? He said, he said, uh, basically he said that, are you going – is that a way to talk to someone that you love? You know, is that a way to talk to your brother, someone you want to uplift by making them feel even more oppressed about the real hardships that are already existing in their life? Mm. So you don't motivate That's people. That's strong. You, you can't motivate people to, and that, that was empowering for me at the moment because I was a similar thing. You know, when you step into becoming newly black conscious, you start, you develop anger and animosity and you're learning all, you become super empowered to where it become, it goes to your head and you start to make others feel inferior and you can't teach and inspire others from a level of inferiority. You will just suppress. Then you'll start to brainwash. So whenever I hear old school black men or even young black men who bind to that, that old school belief and ritual, 
I, I clearly see that they're still operating out of a place of trauma, pain, abandonment, all the right. ills of life that they that they left unresolved. Because you don't talk right. to someone you love, you want to empower, you care about with those same uh, that same type of vindictive uh, 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 attitude, demeanor. You know, so man, I, that's, that's I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you adding that context, and um, you know that's that's some that's some great you know context. I'm so glad you called in because um, you know I want to just add a few things before we go to our next um, segment. But thanks for calling in, uh, Demikos, man. You, you uh, please call in again. Your your work in, in mental health and you know being a fear coach and everything is so relevant, you know, to this conversation because all of you know it's in terms of like history and mental health and all these various things, they intersect systems thinking, uh, education, et cetera, all intersects. And we, um, you know, one of the things that I believe in is that we can't keep learning in silos and talking in silos across these various, um, you know, uh, disciplines. We have to figure out a way to speak to all of them as if they're all in one and the same. Uh, And a lot of people are doing that. uh, But I appreciate, you know, I just want to add that, you know, you you bringing that context in was, was very great, was very good and very healthy because, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, man. You hit the nail on the head talking about people speaking out of their trauma. And one of the things that <clears throat> I try to bring it through this show is just empathy. And empathy goes both ways. You know, I also empathize for those individuals like the Stephen A. Smiths. Instead of, you know, just railing on them, I, I empathize, you know, and I take issue with a lot of things that Stephen A. Smith says, and I've ran it, and I wrote a blog post, and I've ran it on him several, several times, but I also just add that I'm empathetic because he's also speaking out of trauma. What, we're, what we are coming out of as a nation is so complex, and it's so traumatizing, and it's totally, you know, hurt us all in some way. It's impacted us all. No matter your ethnicity, the system of white supremacy and the systems of slavery and systemic racism which again, we're all built on the ideal of white supremacy and also uh, capitalism as, how, as it's unfolded in this country, all those things have damaged us and traumatized all of us in some ways. Some of us are conscious and aware of some of them. Some of us are not. But that doesn't mean that we all haven't been impacted. And the, way that we, and the ways that we've been impacted, they manifest themselves in so many different ways, and we're speaking to one of them. So I just want to just encourage empathy and, and let everyone know, listening to this, that everything I just stated, you know, I empathize with Stephen A. Smith and what he's trying to do by highlighting uh, these things. And even the people who came onto my thread on Facebook who said, well, they just shouldn't get in trouble because you know what, quote unquote, we are up against. And I push back against that because I believe that what, I, what I'm fighting for through, through this platform, I'm fighting for humanity for every person and the humanity for every person. As individuals, it rejects the grouping and the negative grouping, and it rejects having to uh, conform to these oppressive ideals that somehow, as a whole, African-American people have to be 10 times greater and 10 times better and in terms of and, you know, um, those who commit transgressions. And, and, and have to be 10 times human. Really, that's what it's saying. They have to be 10 times human. And of course, I'm speaking in the generalization because most African-American people, just like most people in general, are not out here committing crimes, are not out here getting into trouble. However, I reject the idea that for those who do, that they somehow, A, represent all African-Americans. That's crap. I reject it. 
And B, when they do commit that transgression, I reject the idea that they're making all African-Americans look bad. I'm not buying into that. <clears throat> and, and also, again, that, that they have to be scrutinized at a, at a higher you know, rate in the media and grouped together you know, as why do all these young black players keep getting in trouble as the example. I, I think the media should just stop doing stuff like that. If you want to talk about players getting in trouble, talk about players getting into trouble. But it's the moment they had to add black to it, again, that speaks to a tradition of doing that, a tradition of grouping African-American people in that way. So I hope it makes sense. Thanks to Mikos for, you know, adding some context. I hope that makes sense to the listeners. If not, call in, send me an inbox message, uh, email me at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. Let's continue to learn. Let's continue to unpack all of these things. Um, so that we can, you know, grow closer together and get out of polarization, get out of sens- sensationalism, get out of, you know, uh, us versus them, right versus wrong, and understand that all this stuff is very gray, it's very complex, it's very nuanced, and, you know, we just have to reject, you know, some of this, uh, you know, again, the divisive polarization that in debate-based society that we live in, right versus wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to go ahead and jump into segment three, and. And segment three is kind of uh, building in, building on, um, you know, segment two, because I say here that I'm going to unpack my thoughts on what I perceive to be the unnecessary chastising of African-American people in the media and by other African-American people. So I just spoke to it in the media, so I won't, you know, touch on that any further, but I am going to talk about what I believe to be the unnecessary chastising of African-American people by other African-American people. And again, the Mikos already set the table and stating that it's done out of, out of the historical trauma. We've been socialized into these positions and we have to talk our way out of, we have to learn our way out of these things because I believe that they're damaging in so many ways. That's my belief. And I hope, I know that others will have different contexts that can expand on my belief and my perspectives. And I'm always open to that, but I want to give two examples of what I'm speaking of. The first one is um, I attended a family member's graduation this past weekend at Florida A&M University, uh, historically uh, uh, African-American college and university. And it's a family tradition. Literally, there's probably, there hasn't been a generation uh, on that side of my family, my father's side of family, starting with my grandfather, um, that hasn't, someone hasn't graduated from FAMU. So with that being said, uh, it's a family tradition. And, but one of my sister's friends got on her, her post about uh, us being at graduation, um, and he wrote this. Family tradition and education for a black family is so rare. And when it's shared, it's so awesome. So me personally, when I read that, me being who I am, I pushed back a little bit. He didn't, he didn't intend it uh, to, he, I'm sure he didn't think that anybody was going to push back on what he said. But what I, took, what I pushed back against was the idea that family tradition and education for a black family is so rare. Again, similar to what I spoke about when it comes to first take, there's this idea that we have to group and highlight certain things as being unique to to African people of African descent in ways that I feel like they come from a position of trauma. They come from, in some instances, a position of an inferiority complex, again, that we've been socialized into. And my thing is, if he would have said a family tradition in education is so rare, that's a true statement as well. When you look at the overall uh, statistics of, 
of people in America who actually go on to get college degrees, which I did. I looked it up. And the reality is across all ethnicities, most people don't go to college. So you know what that means? A family tradition and education for any family is rare. So for him to say, like, especially for a black family is so rare, what I hear when I hear people say stuff like that is, so it's not rare for European Americans, it's not rare for Asian Americans, it's not rare for Latin Americans. And, and generally speaking, most of the time when people make these type of comparisons, we're being honest, they're talking about it's always compared to European uh, people of European descent in America. And if we're now, I'm not talking about the number of you know, people of European people versus African people in America who actually go to college and graduate because uh, those percentages are higher, but for obvious reasons. Again, historically speaking, we're not looking at this in a vacuum. There's reasons why. So my thing is when people say that, it's almost as if it's like a surprise. Like why is it, it, sh it shouldn't be a surprise that more people of European descent are going on and graduating from college for the economic reasons as well as the historical educational reasons in terms of how all that has shaped out in our country. We know the history, at least a lot of us, I'm assuming, who are listening to this podcast, we know the history. We know the discrepancies. We know the inequities. So it's almost like a shot, the way I hear it, it's like a shot at African-American people when people make those distinctions in that way. When we understand why, why our numbers aren't on par, why there's a gap between African-American people and European-American people in this country. We know why. So I don't feel like it needs to be highlighted in that way. And here's the thing. I'm not saying this person meant it that way. But what I'm saying is there's something subconscious that I've noticed since I've been, I've been thinking about this stuff for years. And I've been noticing this, this type of language for years that African-American people, when someone or, or a group of people do something good, they, they kind of highlight and make a statement like, especially for an African-American person to do that is amazing. And so that's something I, I just, again, so I, I push back on it because um, for the reason I just shared. And I'm going to give another example. Um, and all I did when I say I pushed back, all I did was highlight the fact that, you know, it's rare, you know, for all families, not just African-Americans. I just wanted to add that to the thread to give people something else to think about just to broaden perspectives. The other thing that I, I wrote about this week and um, my good friend and the, um, the host of the, the, the Mental Dialogue uh, uh, podcast and, and, and radio show, as well as the Mental Dialogue, uh, the founder of the Mental Dialogue community, um, Montoya Smith, who's been a regular contributor uh, on, this, on this podcast as well. Uh, and he's going he's gonna to jump on in a second to share his perspective, but he pushed back against something I had to say. And I want to hear his perspective on it. So, so basically, I, I shared a post about how um, a young African-American woman, about 25 years old, shared with me that, um, that a white coworker was schooling her. This is her words. Uh, a white coworker was schooling her on savings and investments. And then she said to me, you know, we don't save and invest. We are all about show money and being flashy. This is what the, the African-American woman said to me, Scott. She said, after telling me that this, this European-American coworker schooled her on savings and investments, she then turned around and said to me, you know what, Scott, we don't save and we, quote unquote, we, here we go with that again, we don't save and invest. We are all about show money and being flashy. So then I, Scott, quickly inject, interjected that you mean some don't, because personally, I know many, many, many African-American people 
who are fiscally responsible. My grandfather schooled me from a young age about money and budgeting and the importance of savings and all these various things. And I know a lot of African-American people that are fiscally responsible. I know a lot of African-American people people that aren't fiscally responsible as well. However, it's similar to something that D'Amico said earlier. He says that when people make these critiques on from the negative perspective, they don't balance it out with the other side. It's always just this general, this, this broad generalization speaking to a negative trait about African-American people from other African-American people that I take issue with. It, it bothers me. It gets under my skin. I don't understand how, how she can say, I'm sorry, I do understand it. I'm just being honest and saying it bothers me. But when, when she says, we don't save, save and invest, what do you mean? Now, when I reflect, I understand that most people, when they make generalizations, they're speaking about their personal perspective based on the people that they came up around and the people they grew up around, their, their environment, and all these variables. However, I hear people speak and generalize their perspective based on their background and their upbringing and their environment and their variables, and they project that out for all African-American people so much. And that's, again, what I'm pushing back against. So Montoya, um, I'll let him jump in because he took issue with me saying, you know, many, many, many. And I contend that that's a true statement, but that doesn't mean I'm not also acknowledging that many don't. I understand that many don't, but the main point, the main thing that I'm pointing out and the main thing I'm pushing back against is that the chastisement. And because I know some people hate comparing it in some instances, but I don't have any other comparison. And I have, I have never heard anyone from another ethnic group generalize about quote unquote other people that share their, their ethnic background and their cultural background. I've never heard them generalize and chastise their, their group the way that I hear African people do it, people of African descent in America do it. And I just, I'm trying to understand, I'm, okay, I'm sorry, I do understand why D'Amico spoke to it, but I'm trying to bring voice to it. I'm trying to talk about it. I'm trying to speak to some of the nuance behind it. When I speak, just so everyone's listening, and Montoya's about to jump on, so I'm saying this to him, I don't speak to be right. This is, a, this, this is me speaking in a sense of, again, I'm thinking out loud. It's like colleagues working together for common solutions. So when you call me, you inbox me, you email me, don't come on trying to debate with me because that's not my goal. I don't want to argue with you. Build on what I'm saying. If you see some holes in what I'm saying, share it. But again, I'm just speaking my truth and my understanding and my perspective in a way towards solutions. And I hope that other people can simply build on, point out some holes and expand, and let's keep this thing moving forward instead of getting stuck in right versus wrong or you know picking holes in what i'm saying let's build on it let's build on it so i'll I'll close out with this point and montoya you could jump in with i feel like african-american people chastise other african-american people and make broad generalizations far too often on the negative side without balancing it out and 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 they don't and 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 that's i guess that's the point and when i say I, i feel that way i hear that thanksgiving dinners Christmas dinners, family gatherings, et cetera, et cetera. I hear these conversations and these type of com- these things, and they, they make me cringe, and I'm always pushing back. But, um, okay, Montoya, I'll let you jump in uh, with your thoughts on this. All right, thanks a lot, Scott. Amazing show. I mean, I just let me say that 
first and foremost, um, the show, the show, the show has been absolutely excellent. Uh, let Thanks, me, man. You know, start there. Um, I want you to. I, I would like for you, as you say, we're trying to build on a conversation. We're not here to debate. So what I I'm trying one thing that you know we constantly kind of have this conversation. You and I, you say let's do it live on the air, which you know I'm always glad to do. Uh, one thing that I slightly will caution you against is to become aware of your pushback is sometimes using the exact same generalization that you're, that the, the other person is using. So I just want to kind of conceptualize that. Your pushback that you say, for example, is true is sometimes a generalization that in some cases if you peel back the number, and that's, you know, me, I'm trying to, I'm always talking about being factual when it applies. Like here's the area where you and I agree, and I want to share this with you very so we can, you know, so again, so we can, people can understand we're not debating here. So, for example, I'm gonna add a little nuance to your previous segment, and it'll make sense for this segment. So, for example, I, I am a hundred percent agreement with you what happened with the first take segment on the black players. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you. Here's the nuance to that. So, the nuance to that actual situation is, as you said, it's very normalized in this country to over-criminalize African-American in general and especially African-American men. So that segment, as you said, added to this, 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 this narrative that has existed, as you said, since the beginning of the enslavement period. Well, there may be some people that are listening to you saying, well, don't blacks commit more crimes and these things. They may be thinking that. Here's the nuance for why that particular show absolutely an advocate of this narrative unfairly. Because when you peel back the situation with NFL players, which is specifically highlighted, here's a situation where NFL players actually commit crimes at a lower rate than the, the regular public, for one. And then when you actually consider just arrest over the last 17 years, you're talking about less than 3% of African Americans specifically or even arrested, less much convicted, and however far that goes. So what I, my point is, this segment actually takes and highlights something that's actually a non-issue in the NFL, but is used to perpetuate something as a part of larger society that's basically non-existent. If we know that NFL players actually commit crimes less than the public. We we understand they're on, they're on TV and they're highlighted. So we get that point, especially when a specific ish, incident happens, such as a Ray Rice or whatever the case may be. Okay, they're, 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 on, they're on TV, so they highlight it. That kind of comes with the territory of being a professional athlete. So we get that part. But to actually take a segment to act as if this is a real issue, as you've alluded to and made great examples for, it's ridiculous when you actually look at the real numbers. So, again, that's why I agree with you 100%. Now, let me flip where you and I take issue in, in, in this last thing that you spoke to. So, so what happens is there are some conversations, you're right, people can sit around Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, and just kind of complain and generalize and make these, these, these blanket statements just to kind of – I'm losing my word here, but – basically just kind of overgeneralize about how we are as a people. So right. well, here's why I challenge you. In certain conversations, I would ask that you be particular in your response when, in fact, the numbers show something different. So, for example, 
I'll give you a, a specific example so you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. So, you know, you are a listener of my show, and, and I remember this is a specific example, and I'll, think it, and I'll let you jump in after this. So we had a specific example where we had a brother who offers insurance, and he was talking about a particular product that, um, that was encouraging our community, black community specifically, that they should have more insurance because the numbers in comparison to other communities, we don't have as much insurance as others, right or wrong. That's a reality. So he was basically talking about a specific product in which he was saying, you know, this makes sense. It's relatively cheap. And, you know, here's your opportunity to take care of your family generationally if you buy into this product. I'm not endorsing the product personally, but anyway, this is what was being said on the show. And so he talked about how much trouble he had going to other African-Americans. He was talking specifically to get them to buy into this product. And he ended up saying, and you took issue with this, he ended up saying when he shows this same product to white people who don't know about it, they jump on it immediately. And I remember you took offense because you felt like, oh, wow, here's a generalization that, that's unfair. And as you naturally do, you, you know, you naturally push back. And I just want to say to you, in that specific example, we're having a, you know, obviously we were having a conversation to say, hey, this is something that is that, that you need. There are other coaches who can easily see the advantages of it. So in pointing it out, he wasn't making a generalization. He was talking about specifically how he gets customers of other ethnic groups to buy into it much easier than our own. That is a reality. I've been in sales. I've been faced with that. So if I were to say that, in that situation, he wasn't generalizing. generalizing. I'll kind of let you jump in right there. Okay, yeah, just to clarify, he said he made a more definitive statement. He made more of a definitive statement along the lines of, you know, but, you know, black people don't save. It was something, like, strong like that. It wasn't the way you just kind of brother, put it. He, I, brother, I specifically remember and him sorry, saying, he, and you he, took issue with this. He specifically said that, with, and I think you missed that he was talking about his own interaction. You, because we say it so often, I think you heard as him making a generalization. So I, 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 and I, it's okay. It's okay because it happens so often. So I'm not trying to, you know, I'm, I'm letting you know. It's just I'm just adding clarification. You because know, when you came on the show, it, and we talked, it wasn't so much when you came on the show when we talked after the fact. That's how I realized you heard him speaking as typical as most people will often make these generalizations. I'm just letting you know in that specific example, we were talking to our community specifically, and he was literally saying when he presents that same product to whites, they jump on it. You heard the they and thought he was making a generalization. And I'm just saying okay. there are times when it, it does matter in nuance that you don't generalize back in order for us to make okay. steps forward, in my opinion. All right, so let, let me let me let me let me um, speak on everything you just said. So, regardless of how I heard what he said, I did push back against the generalization, and um, here's here's why. In general, um, it's it's two points I want to make, but I guess I'll make that one first. In general, um, when speaking about uh, just that example you just gave, but really like all these examples. When African-American people, those who do generalize in this way, when giving an example about something that African-American people may be deficient in, generally speaking, not all African-Americans, um, or something that is negative about the culture for some uh, culturally that some people within African-American uh, you know, culture may do or behaviors or whatever that some, not all, do. But when I hear African-American people 
at the, gen- at the dinner table speaking as if it's just the norm for, again, in a general way, my, the, issue I take, the issue I take in addition to it just being a generalization and most people not in general, most people in general speaking across all, you know, people, we all kind of speak in generalizations. And I, I, I'm an advocate for like unpacking and speaking more complexity. Um, if we're going to solve, com- one of the things I like to say is if we're going to learn to solve complex problems, we got to start speaking in complexity. But with that being said, um, what, I'm gen- what I'm generally pushing back against is I don't, I don't hear this, the level of empathy that I feel like is necessary when people are saying these things. So using the example you gave, so when the gentleman was speaking, it came off as a chastisement. This is the way I took it. I'm not saying he meant it that way, but I'm saying this is the way that Scott hears it, and it may be because of my trauma, whatever I'm dealing with. But when I, hear, when I heard him speaking about how African-Americans don't take advantage of these particular insurance products, but then contrasting it with how certain European-Americans do, I think that's unfair. Because now, again, that is, that's a sensitive area for African-American people. Because, again, he, when he said it, he didn't speak with the level of empathy in terms of, I know why African-American people, generally speaking, may not be as trustworthy because of our history of being misled financially, our history of not having the level of education or the ability to to navigate the complexity behind some of these products because that level of nuance and understanding finance and things hasn't been passed down through enough generations yet, generally speaking. And also just, again, we've generally speaking, African-Americans have been taken advantage of in so many ways. I don't hear that level of empathy in his tone and in, in, in that particular conversation and in other conversations, it's more of a tone of, I don't know why y'all don't get it. It's more of a tone of no, no one, he didn't say it or other people don't say it. Y'all stupid for not getting it. That's the tone I'm hearing. It's not a tone of empathy. It's not a tone of let me nurture you. It's not a tone of let me nurture you past your trauma. Let me nurture you past your lack of understanding. Let me nurture you past, you know, the fear you may have for all the reasons that we know why historically. And then I feel like to double down and compare it to what European Americans do is so unfair. And it's something that's been done and used against us, that stick, that stick right there that has been used against us going all the way back to the first segment of what Gypsy talked about with the hair normalcy. So because of the trauma of what, what African Americans have had to do or continually have to do to assimilate to a culture of, of quote-unquote white normalcy and a culture and the systems that were built on a, a, a system of white supremacism and all the things that African people have had to do to assimilate to all of those things for another African-American person to use that stick, I take issue with that as well because it just adds to the pain. It adds to the trauma. Like you're comparing me to them. And then on top of that, again, when we unpack that a lot of, not all, but a lot of European Americans, a larger, let me say this, a larger percentage of European Americans do have a, a history and a heritage of a certain level of, uh, of, of financial literacy that has been passed down because they've had more access to that information. They have more trust because all of the systems were designed with them in mind, so they automatically trust systems more, et cetera, et cetera. We know why a larger percentage of European Americans are easy, you know, do accept certain things easier. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I absolutely respect um, your passion. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. Um, so 
I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. I actually, actually understand your pushback a little more in hearing what you just said. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, yeah, definitely, 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 definitely. So, can I again? Okay, go ahead, oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. brother. Finish, make your second point. Go ahead, no, please finish, finish. Yeah, because I did. I said I had a second point too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please the, go ahead. The, go other, ahead. The, other, the other thing that you said was, uh, and this is, I pulled this down from Facebook. This is what your comment was. You said, I will continue to challenge you to be more consistent in correcting others' generalizations, but your response is a relative generalization that is often less accurate than the generalization you are attempting to correct. So then you go on to say, um, I agree that, that words matter, and offline I'll give you real history why your focus on the exceptions can be very detrimental to our community, and you capitalize O-U-R, our community. You know I'm first to highlight our achievements, but continuously overplaying them in the wrong circles only serves to reinforce some of the same narratives we both hate. So I want you to comment on that when I give my thoughts real quick. <clears throat> so the other thing I wanted to say, when you push back at me and you say that my statement is a generalization, and you said I'm pushing back against a generalization that is more accurate. When this young lady said to me that we don't save and invest, we is an absolute. That means anyone who looks like she and I were looking at each other at that moment, we don't save and invest. That's an absolute statement. When I come back and I said many, 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 that's not an absolute. There's wiggle room in many. And that's all I ask people to do. I ask people to use words like many, some, not all, a lot, etc. So what I didn't understand is that you're pushing, when you push back at me, Montoya, and said that I'm generalizing in a different direction, I'm thinking to myself, but I didn't. Just because I said many, many, many three times, I'm still, <clears throat> I didn't say, I didn't say no. I, I didn't say to her, what do you mean? We do save and we do invest. If I would have said that, that's an absolute. I said many, many, many to highlight that there's a lot, but it's still not all. So I want you, you know, I just wanted to add that. And then I yeah. want you to speak to how I may be, what I'm saying and what I'm doing may be detrimental. Right. All right. Cool. So you, uh, here's the area where you've contradicted yourself um, okay. on this show. So you actually realized it said when you were talking about how we need to speak to complexities, you actually mentioned earlier in the segment that people speak in generalizations. So you're very mm -hmm. aware of it. And now right. your pushback on her we, which you admitted, you know she does not mean all. Like I've told you, you'll never hear me ever mean all anytime I say we, <laughs> us, they. It makes no sense because once you speak in a absolute, one exception kills it. So as we just submitted, people speak in generalization. So generally speaking, if you can concede what you just said earlier, she meant it generally. Okay, so let's give her that. Well, you know, because it rubs you the wrong way, you hear it as an absolute. You do this, in my opinion, quite often because of good reasons. You just gave me some good reasons for why we shouldn't do it as much, and I'm okay with that. But I do want you to be aware of you keep hearing these absolutes when you just admit it. People speak in generalizations. So let's go there. Okay. Secondly, let me let me jump. Secondly, let me jump before you go to the. Can I can I jump there before you okay. go to the other part about okay, our community? Because I, I want us to unpack that a little more. So because I, I I had this I said this to you about a year ago and I want our listeners to hear this. This was a personal conversation. The reason why I think it's so important to get away from um, people saying we and this us as adults saying we know she means it as a generalization is because I'm always thinking about the next genera generation. So when I'm sitting around the Thanksgiving table, what I'm thinking to myself is 
those six, seven, and eight-year-olds, they're hearing we, we, we. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with how they're internalizing that. I'm concerned that they're internalizing those we because children are very um, general. Children, um, I'm sorry, they're very literal. Um, and, and for the listeners, I'm in, I have a doctor in education. Like, this is my space. I read a ton of books on child psychology. I'm passionate about it. And I understand how children think. And I have two little children. And they ask questions when they hear things. So I know how they're internalizing things. So one of the main reasons that I ask you, the listener, when you hear me say that we need to get away from speaking in generalizations, because we, if we're gonna, because we have a lot of complex problems in this world, and if we're going to solve complex problems, we have to learn how to think in complexity. I never speak in generalizations around my children, and I take longer to explain things, and it may be a little uncomfortable and, and tedious, but it's because I want their minds to be wired in a way that is thinking and, the, and, and that automatically thinks in a way that unpacks things and not in generalizations. Because I know that as for my five-year-old, if he sits at the table and he hears a statement like this, you know, we black people are, all, we black people are always getting in trouble. In his little mind, he's looking and he says, okay, I'm what's considered, even though my kids, I, they don't think of themselves as black because of my thoughts on that. But if he hears it as, you know, okay, I'm African-American. And so we always get in trouble. And people that look like me, we always get in trouble. Okay, so we're, we're the trouble people. It's like the, that can go a lot of places. Let's put it like that. That can go for a young person internalizing that, that can go a lot of places. And that's a whole other conversation in terms of my dealings with young elementary kids and how I feel like some of them have internalized some of those messages and how they uh, manifest themselves in, in our communities and in the real world. But I think that plays into some of the self-hate that I, that I perceive within uh, certain segments of the African-American community. It's a lot of these, these, these generalizations in the way that they're always used from a negative standpoint, not always, but oftentimes uh, used in a negative standpoint. So again, so that's the reason why, again, I push back against saying we know that she made a generalization is because I'm thinking about the next genera gener generation and I'm asking for all of us who are trying to move the culture forward to think about it from that standpoint. We got to start unpacking these things so that our young people can start thinking in these complex ways right from a young age. So, all right. So that's an area, like, I, I actually agree with you, especially, again, in a conversation where there are younger people in the room, a lot of that trauma, trauma and those continual conversations come because those, as you said, those shame young people have heard that all their lives. So that's an area in which I understand you completely. But, again, I still will challenge you specifically you know, don't hear we as an absolute when you also know that people are not being absolute when they're speaking. And then in a room of adults, you, you make these same challenges and, and as if they're being absolute. So when, I, when I'm not being absolute, your challenge, in my opinion, should not be as if, one, I'm being absolute, and then, two, here's the area where I've always thought you've missed. You, you're unaware that your response is the generalization. So in, even in that particular if, if there's two adults in the room, there's no kids that can hear you. Even if she said, you know, she said it just between you and her. So when, you, when she says, we don't invest, and you say, well, many, 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 you're, being general, you're generalizing back, especially when the numbers, the real numbers, and here it is, when they don't show, it's many, many, many. If, if we find out 
do compared to 95%, that's not many, 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 many. You're generalizing back. And the thing is, I'm not trying to point you out on that one conversation. Here's the bigger picture when I say how it can hurt us. Let's get to the bigger picture versus, you know, doing that nuance. The bigger picture is this. So the bigger picture is what happens is there are areas, and this is why you may hear someone, um, you know, uh, like a Corey Bill who you heard on the show speak the way that he did. There are areas, unfortunately, in our community, and this is a reality, I think, I hope you can at least agree to this, that there are areas where I love empathizing just as you do. But there are also areas where we're hurting, where we're not paying attention to it to actually move the needle. So, for example, whereas I agree with you on the NFL things for the reasons I've already told you, well, in an area such as poverty, for example, you know, in, in uh, for example, so when, we, when you find out the, the, the actual real numbers, and for, so for example, when you're saying many, 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 which ends up being just relative to your surroundings, but the actual numbers in our community are much different. The reality is much lower than many, 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 many. For Atlanta, for example, if you know that 80% of African-American children are living in poverty in Atlanta specifically, and that's a real number based on the Anti-Case Foundation, I think I'm saying it correctly. I'm just saying, for example, if you find that out, and somebody, and we're in a, in a room where we're speaking to that reality, that's not a generalization at that point. We're speaking to that reality to address it. Here's how it comes to hurt us if we spend time pinpointing, well, it's not all. In that conversation, it, it ends up bogging down that particular conversation, and here's how it's played out in a bigger context. I'll give you a, a great example, and I know you're not political, but here's a real-life example of how it's played out. So, obviously, the majority of the African-American community takes major contention with how Trump speaks to our community. I personally contention with it. You know, I'm an independent voter. Like I said, I know politics is not your thing. But I'll say um, the perfect example of it, and then, like I said, there's been, you've, you've had, you know, I've been on your show where I've taken issue with things he said. But the perfect example of it was that, right before the election where he says to our community, your schools are hurting, you don't have jobs, what else do you have to lose? And so clearly a lot of African Americans were very, very hurt and bothered and upset that he would say such a thing. And so anyway, he gets the presidency, he gets, you know, he gets, he becomes president. He has Jim, you know, we had a conversation. We had Jim Brown come through, Steve Harvey come through. So a lot of communities said, hey, he's not even talking to the right people. Well, here's how that statement of how he spoke to us took precedence over some real numbers for us. So what happened was he eventually met with the Black Caucus and some other guy, I don't know his name. Their only concern, how he speaks to the community. But when I say their only concern, these particular people that I'm talking about, because they're in the percentage of of our community that's maybe doing okay. They're in that percentages. So they can look around themselves like you can and say, 
why you, they literally say, don't, you know, you got to learn to speak better. Like, literally, that's what they said to Trump in this room, come to find out, once the information came out publicly. So they're concerned about that, while in the meantime, our, the majority of our schools in our community are really hurting. We have jobless rates of over 50% for our teenagers in these major urban areas. And their number one concern was based on don't speak to us because that's not all of us. So I'm telling you, there are times where you can look around you in your relatively th- your relative thinking, and Atlanta's the perfect example of it because we're the number one city for income inequality. So you can look around circles and see what you think is many, 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 you peel back the numbers, and it ain't many. And I'll say this and let you speak. If for every dollar, and I know you hate the comparisons, but it is something that has to be compared. You can't always lump it together economically when the difference shows here's a real issue, and often it is related to the situation with white supremacy that, we, that you and I both agree needs to be removed. But the nuance of lumping things together sometimes does not allow us to attack the real issue. And the example is this, for every dollar of wealth, and we know the differences. Yes, you speak to that all the time. We have, that, uh, that the Caucasian community has, we have six cents. But when you look at the history and see that that number has not progressed, and you unfortunately speak to that number progressing, what if the numbers show they're not? Our housing, our housing rate in Atlanta right now is lower than it was in the 30s during the Depression for African Americans. So when those are the real numbers, I don't know what many, many, many you're talking about, brother. Okay. So I appreciate you unpacking all of that. Um, you know, all great points. And, you know, I'll, I'll um, I mean, again, it's, it's, we're, for me, it's like two separate conversations. Um, and I think the, the one level, on the one level, it's, <clears throat> you know, what I pushed back for what she said, it was just, um, you know, for the reasons I expressed, you know, in terms of pushing back. And like D'Amico said, they don't balance it out. There was no balance. And I just want to hear balance and I want to hear empathy. That's the bottom line. I just, I feel like I want to hear balance in people's, you know, expressions of these things. And I want to hear a level of empathy for the historical, you know, um, you know, for the historical reasons why. The historical context, why, when we're talking about generally speaking, when we pull these group numbers, why they are the way they are. So that was that. And again, in terms of me, you know, saying many, 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 and your pushback against that, again, that's, uh, let's, let's go beyond that because, again, many is not a numbers. I didn't give any percentage. I didn't give anything. I just said many. That could mean a lot of different things. So to go beyond that, uh, <clears throat> to your point about the, um, you know, the, let's just call it the wealth gap or whatever, um, you know, all good points. I mean, it's real. I mean, we know that generally speaking, when in comparison, when we compare groups, you know, African-American people, again, because of historical context, um, you know, when you pull together resources, we're, we're far behind. Um, when, when I say we, I'm speaking about people of African descent who are descendant of African uh, enslaved Africans in America. So what you're saying is um, when I speak to, and I want to say that many people are saving and many people are investing I don't think that the issue is that I made a false statement because that's a true statement as well. Because again, I didn't give a percentage, you know, I didn't say a number. I didn't say, you know, the majority, 
I didn't say anything that's like a, that. That's, that's, a, that's a generalization, though. I mean, many is a general. Because you, you, you tell her she should say some. So if you come back and say many, many, then you're, set, you're, you're, being, you're not being fair. If she do say she should say some, then if she says some, you should let her be. But you say many, so, many, many. You're both using it the same way. You got to be, say, you gotta be, be nah, consistent. She, I'm just saying you said she, had, she say said some. But you, but again, Scott, I know you would still give the pushback. You always do. Even when, no, even when I tell you, I never mean all. You still give me the pushback. I never mean all. Right, and but I've already let's not go me. back. We're going backwards now. I've already, in, I've already, we're going backwards because I've already said why. You can't like, dismiss your many, many though. You can't <clears throat> dismiss it. You're dismissing it. That's not cool. Let me, your many, let, many, let me, many is man. That's, you just threw me off my thought too. You just threw me off my thought. That's pattern, a generalization, but, Scott. Though at least all okay, of that's a generalization. The the time is running down. Let me finish. The time is, we're okay. running out of time. So. And again, I'm going to speak to what you just said, because again, what I, what I, because we're going backwards. What I push back is against the, the absolute of a statement like we, if she would have said some, I wouldn't have pushed back. You said I would have, I'm saying I wouldn't. Okay. And when I, when I say, again, it's a difference to me. And I express that we as absolute many that leaves room, some leaves room. It leaves about room. most. Does most, well, most, mostly, most leaves room. Yeah, no, most leaves room. I'm okay, okay with most. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with many. Okay. I'm okay with most. Most African American people or most European American. I'm okay with that because that's not all. That's not all. So that's all I push back against. I, I just push back when people say speak in a way that means that um, says all. Even if they don't mean all, if you speak in a way that says all, that's what I push back against. And I gave the reasons why. But going forward, <clears throat> so what I was trying to, what I'm trying to unpack and say is that again, um, when I say many. And I hope I can bring this, this thought process back. But when I, when I said many, um, I'm, not, I'm not speaking to, um, in that scenario, that was just in that scenario. Um, and it's, it's actually a true statement. There are, it's a true statement. It's a true generalization because it, it's open for interpretation, I guess. And, and, and if you want to push back on, against that, let's push, it to the side. Come on, let's, let's push it to the side. Well, you got to get that to the other person then. You got to get that to the other side then. But you, uh, we only have 10 minutes. That's why I can't really get it. I, I don't understand. We got to do this offline because we just, our signals are crossed. Let's just say that because I'm telling you, yes, it's a generalization, but I left it open for interpretation versus it being an absolute. I don't understand why you can't get that, but we're going to have that. Let, let me, don't cut me off. Let me okay. finish. Let okay. me finish because we ran out of time. So we can get that offline. But again, it was a true generalization that left room for interpretation, et cetera. Now on the next level, on the next lane, which is something totally different is when you want to talk about, you know, the, the gaps, you know, whether it be the achievement gap in education, whether it be the economic, social economic gap, et cetera, et cetera. That's a different conversation and how that's used politically. Again, um, I understand what you said about what Donald Trump said, et cetera, et cetera. And how that's used. I get it. Um, I mean, that's, again, that's a whole nother ball of wax. It's not the lane that I intended my conversation to be in, um, because that's for me. Now you're going over to another topic that you know that we've had conversation we've had that we don't have time to get into, which is my feelings about how capitalism has unfolded and what how it's used in society to will power and oppress, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> because when I'll just I'll just leave this when you talk about, um, and I, I probably shouldn't leave it because I know it's going row it may row you up, but. When you talk about the, the wealth gap, for example, when you say that European Americans have X amount of dollars to every six cents or whatever, the, the example you gave, when I distill that down to the individual level, it doesn't mean anything. 
like, and what I mean by that is, as you know, there's some people of European descent that are living at that six cent per dollar rate of some other people. And it's like to them, if I was to say to that person, that poor person of European descent, well, you know, generally speaking, and according to the data, European Americans have 10 times or 14 times the wealth as African uh, Americans to that person. It means nothing. It means absolutely, well, it, it means absolutely nothing to that person. So it's like, just economically, we just have a system that's just stupid and doesn't is is, is stupid and it, it's just it hurts it hurts people in general, and then the way it's used politically, it hurts people and it also puts people at a, in a position of um, resentment, especially poor the millions and millions and millions just in terms of this because of sheer population numbers of European Americans. And I don't know you're better with the numbers than me, but there may be as many poor European Americans as there are poor African Americans just in a sheer number basis, not. Yeah, they're, about, they're, about, they're, about even, they're about about even, yeah, they're about even. I mean, it's one in right. ten whites to live poor and one in four <clears throat> blacks to live poor. But total number-wise, because they're 300 million, you know what I mean? That, right. That's what we're both around 40 million, of, you know, about the same. Right. So if you put those 40 million European-Americans next to those 40 million poor African-Americans, they're all in the same boat. So when those 40 million um, European-Americans hear politicians, you know, say stuff about, the issues that poor African-American people are having, they're like, hold on, but what about our issues? And again, I just look at that as something that like divides and it's just so much to unpack there, but it's, it's, it's just so much, again, it's so much. And, and I know I opened up a can of worms that you want to, you know, you would want to add so much more to, and I got to actually have leave enough time in the show to actually, you know, say my closing points. But what I want to close out and say is that, and I'm actually, and I, just so you know, and for the listeners, I'm going to do a whole series of shows on, on, on the, the economic things that we're talking about, how classism and racism intersect and all that stuff. And I'm going to bring on a panel of people like Montoya and others to kind of help unpack that because I have a lot of thoughts about that. And I want people to help me think through it. And I want us to think out loud about these things together and just to have an intelligent conversation around that topic. So Montoya, I'm going to let you finish up any last things you want to say. And then I have like four minutes just to say my closing pieces before we get cut off here. Like I said, I feel like I understand you well. In my personal opinion, maybe you don't. Um, I, I still feel like there's, some, you know, some areas you're missing. Like I said, I know we don't have 100% time to, you know, unpack that or whatever. Um, you know what I mean? So, but I'll just, you know, just ultimately say um, some of what I'm talking about has nothing to do with capitalism whatsoever. I just use that as a political example. And I remember when I first met you, I remember we we had a ended up having a conversation. I didn't know you at the time. You were on a panel, and I remember it was another young man doing the same thing, speaking to some of the real numbers. And, you know, you obviously gave your natural pushback. That's how I met you. And yep. at the time, I'm still going, I remember thinking to myself, this man is not speaking reality right now. We're bogging down. This man is wanting to address these real issues we have, and we can't talk about them because, you know, I, I know you very well now, and I love you to death, but I'm like, this man right here is talking about something that's not even close to true. Because, you know, you, you, you call your generalization a reality. In some areas, it's not close to reality. I'm sorry, but I'll leave it with that. <clears throat> okay. So I appreciate you calling in, man. I appreciate all of the um, the callers, uh, Gypsy, D'Amico's, and Montoya for calling in, adding their context, uh, adding their nuance. I hope that, um, you know, for the listeners, you guys got a lot out of this. I know it's a lot. I know this is heavy conversation. And, you know, if you got to hit pause sometimes and come back to it and take it in over a few days to unpack it all, 
um, you know, please stick with us. Please listen to it all because I just think that this is what's going to help us move forward uh, as a people. And one of the things that I'm for and one of the things that I'm moving towards as I continue to learn and grow is, and I know everyone is, is not going to agree with this statement, but it's something I believe in, um, is that I want to get away from these, you know, these segmented uh, groupings that we have and, you know, this community versus that community. And I think that that's one of the things that's going to be necessary for us to, you know, unravel all the damage uh, that we've inherited, um, you know, in, in terms of how we are all, you know, segmented into certain, you know, communities that have certain issues. I just want to, you know, hopefully, you know, speak to a point where we can unpack it and talk about it and, and work it out. But ultimately, on the other end of the tunnel, uh, we're, we're coming together and we're just creating one nation, one nation indivisible. You guys hear me say it a lot. You're going to hear me say it often. I just want us to get to the point where we're just one nation indivisible. And if one person has a problem, it's all of our problem. One individual. If one individual has a problem, it's all of our problem. We empathize, we learn, we get to the core root, and we do what we can do to make sure that everyone feels valid, everyone feels worthwhile, feel like they're contributing to society, and feel like they have equity and equality in society. That's what I feel like we, we are working towards, and that's what I feel like this work is all about. Not getting stuck, but continually to move forward, but I'm not afraid to go through all the stuff that we talk about, because I think it's necessary for us to get to the other side, which is not the, the, the quote unquote white community, the quote unquote black community or Hispanic community, quote unquote athlete community, quote unquote rich community, quote unquote poor community and, you know, South community and North community and West community, you name it. I just want to get to the point where we're aware and cognizant of what is healthy for every individual and it's all of our responsibility to make sure that we're lifting each other up, no matter what. One nation, indivisible. So that's our time for today. Thank you for listening. And especially thank you again to all of our callers. Be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on iPhone podcast app or Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review so that we can get more visibility. It helps us to gain more visibility and more people will take a listen and hopefully join this movement towards moving towards the ideals that I speak towards if you believe in them. And if you have any questions, you can always inbox me on Facebook or email me or John or even any of the guests and I can get it to them like Montoya, some of our regular contributors at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. Any thoughts, you can share it there. You can also share your thoughts and ideas under the posting of the show on Facebook at our Race Haven podcast page. Make sure you like and follow that page. And if you want to join the online chat community, you can do so at the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group. If you just search for Race Haven Community Dialogue in the group section, you'll find the group there. Please tell a friend about Race Haven today. Let them know that we're doing some serious work over here to move the culture forward. And when I say the culture, I'm talking about society in general. I don't care about anything about your differentiators or ethnic background or anything like that. The culture is us, the people, the humans, humans. A race haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, <clears throat> assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Love y'all. Peace.